Thank you for praying with me. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians 6. We are finishing up our study in the book of Ephesians this morning. And I think it's very fitting that if you're familiar with the church calendar, if you're familiar with what today is, today in a, uh, is typically uh, thought of as Palm Sunday. And so it is the day where many churches would be celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus as he rode on a colt into Jerusalem, ultimately lit, hearing the crowds cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. They were so excited that the Messiah was here. They were going to be freed from oppression, from under Roman rule. And Jesus, on his way into town, knew that in just a few short days, this crowd was going to turn on him and cry out, crucify, crucify him. Let's kill him. He's not what we wanted. We're done with him. That is typically what you would see on a Sunday morning today on Palm Sunday. I think it's very fitting that in our rhythm of studying books of the Bible, this morning we come to the close of Ephesians and we're finishing up this armor of God that we started last week, looking at how Paul has been writing this letter to this group of believers, encouraging them to really embrace their identity in Christ. And how when you have an identity rooted in Christ, it changes everything about your life. It changes how you think. It changes how you talk. It changes the way you work. It changes your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss or your employees. Everything is different when you have an identity in Christ. And he started the letter out saying that you are now chosen before the foundation of the world. You are sons and daughters. You have been adopted into God's kingdom. And yet, as he's drawing this letter to a close, as he's writing from a prison cell, he has no choice but to acknowledge that while there's much that is different and beautiful, and we have this great expectancy of Jesus returning, life is still hard. There's still battles and struggles and temptation. And so last week we looked at how we live in this, this reality of the already, but the not yet of God's kingdom. That yes, we are adopted sons and daughters, but we anxiously await our returning king. And in the meantime, we find ourselves caught in this world with battles and hurts and struggles. And we saw that Paul was calling us to, to be equipped with the armor of God. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at, as Paul finishes out this letter, an extensive list of what is this armor that we're supposed to put on? What does it do and how does it help us in the battles we find ourselves in? And so if you have your Bibles in Ephesians 6, we're going to pick up where we stopped last week in verse 14. As we look to be equipped for the battle we find ourselves in, let's read verses 14 through 17. Paul says, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We'll pause there for a little bit as we look at what do we need to be equipped to fight these battles that we find ourselves in. The first thing is we need the armor of God. 
And this armor, Paul says, um, is, is extensive, but he starts out saying what has been a recurring theme as he's closing this letter, that as followers of Jesus, it's our responsibility to stand. That God does not rescue you out of darkness and into light so you can sit on the sidelines. You are called into service in God's army, and your job is to stand. In light of last week, looking at who is our enemy— It's not one another. It's the spiritual forces over this present darkness and the cosmic powers and the rulers and the authorities that we don't struggle with each other. It's not flesh and blood. And so because of that knowledge, we now know who we fight against and we can stand. And we have to fasten on, he says, the belt of truth. Now, it's, a, it's, it's important for us to know, Paul is painting a very vivid picture for the church at Ephesus. He wants them to see this armor. And so he's using Roman militia words. And so when he says, having fastened on the belt, he's drawing them into a very common sight in their city, which would have been a soldier ready for battle. And a soldier symbolized that he was ready to fight by fastening on his belt. It was the last piece of armor that would go around their waist and tie everything down tight and secure all that they had put in place. And so he's encouraging these Ephesian believers to fasten, to get ready for battle. Because if a soldier wasn't ready for battle, his belt would not be on. It might be on their shoulders. They might leave it at home. It was a symbol that I'm ready to fight when their belt was fastened. You knew, don't mess with that soldier. He's ready to go. And he's saying, believers, you need to fasten on the belt of what? Of truth. And so we have to ask ourselves, what, what is truth? We live in a day and an age where truth is, I believe, wrongly professed to be relative. That you can have your truth, I can have my truth, and we can coexist, and that's all fine and good. And I would say that's a scheme of the enemy, which we talked about last week. That's a lie. And so what is Paul talking about when he says that you put on this belt of truth as we're looking to be equipped with the armor of God? Well, he answers this earlier in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 1, verse 13, In him... In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then in Ephesians 4, he continues to expound on this idea by saying, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so Paul has combined throughout his letter to the Ephesian church this idea that what is truth? Truth is the word of God. It is the rhema. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he is the the sinless son of God that lived the life you and I could not live, died in our place for our sins, went to a very real grave, spent three days in the grave, and then conquered sin, death, walked out of the tomb, and the tomb is empty. That is truth. But he also ties truth to righteousness. And one of the things that I think Paul is doing as he's closing this letter is not just encouraging the believers in Ephesus to have a confidence when they go into battle, but also a confidence in the word of God. Because as we go through this, we're going to go back and see how Paul is is using Old Testament language 
and Old Testament prophecy to encourage the believers to be equipped for battle. And so if we go back to the book of Isaiah, and we look at Isaiah 11 verse 5, prophesying about the coming Messiah, Isaiah writes, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. We have the gift of hindsight. We have the gift of being able to look at the Old Testament. And this is what Paul is trying to do for the church at Ephesus is say, let's go back and read the Old Testament. Let's go back to the book of Isaiah and look at it in light of what Jesus came and did. And so when Isaiah said, one is coming who's going to wear righteousness as a belt around his waist, and he says we are to put on the true righteousness of Christ, that truth is this gospel message that Jesus is the only righteous one, the sinless Son of God. That is at the core of our being. If we are to be equipped for battle, we need to have at the center of us the knowledge that the gospel is true, that Jesus is who he said he is. He did what he said he was going to do, and he's coming back. That equips us to go in to battle. And what I want us to see as we go through this armor is that this armor, again, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, it's God's armor. He gives it to us. And as Jesus was riding into town on a colt, listening to the crowds cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, he had on this armor. He needed it to get through his life, ministry, death, and resurrection. And then he hands it off to us and says, you wear this. You put this on. This is my armor. I used it. Now you use it as well. And so he came wearing righteousness and truth as a belt around his waist. And that's what Paul is calling the believers in Ephesus and you and I to to do as well, is to put on the truth that Jesus came and died for us. That equips us for battle. That is the core of what we believe. He goes on to say that we are to um, put on the breastplate of righteousness. He's continuing this idea that we have a personal responsibility to take our salvation seriously. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can do. But once we have been brought out of darkness and into light, we have a responsibility to do something, to stand and engage in battle. And so he's saying, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, this would have been a very vivid picture for the Ephesians that there was this breastplate that the Roman soldiers would put on that would go from neck to navel. It would wrap around to cover their ribs. It would protect their vital organs. Culturally, it was known as the heart protector. It protected them from enemy attacks. It prevented them from being fatally injured. And so Paul here is saying, put on the breastplate. Your heart protector is righteousness. Again, we're going to go back to Isaiah and look with hindsight and with gospel lenses, with a Jesus filter on and say, and and read Isaiah 59 verse 17 again, talking about the coming Messiah. He says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. The coming Messiah would wear a breastplate 
of righteousness. A heart protector of righteousness. And then a helmet of salvation. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I think it's fitting for us to ask the question, well, whose righteousness is it? Is this Paul's way of encouraging the church in Ephesus to just do better? Serve more in children's ministry? Give more in the offering boxes? Is he encouraging them to do more with their religion? No, it's not our righteousness that we put on. Again, let's go back to that verse in Ephesians 4, verse 24. We're to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God is the true righteousness. Jesus is the true righteousness. And so we put his righteousness on us. And if we can remember back to Ephesians 2, Paul talked about how we were once dead in our, in our sins and our trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air. We were enemies of God, but Christ made us alive. And so now we have this new life in us that needs to be protected, that needs to be covered over. And it is by the blood of the lamb that we are protected. And so when we go into battle, we go into battle knowing who we are in Christ, whose authority we go in. It's not because of anything you did. It's all what Jesus did. That's why in verse 10, he says, be strong, not in your might, but in the strength of the Lord. We go in covered and protected and and we watch over and guard our hearts by remembering and saying, Jesus, it's your righteousness, not mine. I can never do enough. This isn't about my performance. It's about your performance and your crying out on the cross. It is finished. That is the righteousness that we put on. That is the righteousness that equips us to guard our hearts and fight in battle. He goes on to say, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Again, this language of put on. There's a personal responsibility, but can we just acknowledge that this is a little bit difficult of a concept, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's confusing language, but before we get to that, I think we need to understand again, what was the Ephesian church picturing when he says shoes? Were they flip-flops? Were they brand new Nikes? What's, what are they picturing? The, the Roman military was very skilled and adept at preparing their soldiers for battle. And shoes are not an afterthought when you're marching into war. They're marching for miles and miles, and then it's hand-to-hand combat and long hours on your feet. The shoes were essential for a soldier. And I read a commentary this week that said the Roman soldiers actually would have spikes coming out of the bottom of their shoes, kind of like cleats, so that they could have firm footing regardless of the terrain. They wanted to make sure that no matter what situation they stood on, they had a firm foundation and that gave them the advantage in battle. And so he's saying, make sure you have a firm foundation. Make sure you're able to stand and on your feet, you're going to put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What is he talking about? What does that mean? Well, there's actually a couple of different thoughts. One is saying that what we stand on, we are ready for all of life's attacks because of what Jesus did for us on the, because we have this gospel of peace. We have firm footing to stand. 
That's what Paul is saying. He's saying your foundation is secure when you know this gospel, this good news of Jesus and the peace that you now have with God through Christ. Another argument is no, what, what Jesus or what Paul is actually saying here is that the gospel gives us a firm footing to go into the darkness. Or as Isaiah 52, as Isaiah would prophesy, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who published salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So which is it? Is it this readiness of the gospel of peace is our firm foundation? Or is Paul saying, go into battle with this good news of Jesus Christ and invade darkness with glorious light? I would submit to you this morning, it can be both. Our firm foundation, that which we stand on, that keeps us secure no matter the battle we find ourselves in, is the good news that Jesus came while we were enemies and brought us into peace with God. Paul has said this earlier in his letter in Ephesians 2 verse 17. He says, he being Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Here he's speaking about Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were near, the Gentiles were far off because an underlying theme of the book of Ephesians is this plea for unity under the cross that we are all equal, that again, our our war isn't with each other, that we are unified and desperately dependent on Jesus. But we need to acknowledge that we have a mission We are soldiers that are called to go into wherever you workshop, play. God has you there for a purpose, on purpose. And you can bring this gospel of peace into those situations because hopefully we all live, work, have neighbors, somebody in your life that is still an enemy of God. And you can bring the good news that you don't have to be an enemy anymore. Jesus died for that, and he can reconcile and redeem that and bring you into his kingdom. And we need to be ready as good soldiers to proclaim that, stand on that, never move on from that, and we will be equipped to fight, to engage with our lost friends, neighbors, coworkers, whoever it would be. He continues on to say, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That phrase, in all circumstances, may be better translated um, to cover all the rest. To protect everything else, you have this shield of faith. And we get kind of a clarifier here of how, how useful this shield is. That this shield is able to extinguish not some of the flaming darts, all of them. And this was probably, as I studied and meditated over the last couple of weeks, this was probably um, the most uh, enlightening, the most convicting, the richest part of my study was studying this shield of faith. Because as I studied, what was the picture that the, the believers in Ephesus would have thought of? It's not like a Captain America shield. That's what I kind of immediately think of because I watch too many movies. Um, that's not what they pictured. The Roman shield was this four foot tall, two and a half foot wide wooden shield that they soaked in water and then wrapped 
in leather and then covered the edges with metal. And as I was praying and meditating on, why would they soak a shield in water and wrap it in leather? And that just seems like it takes something that would already be heavy and awkward to carry and make it all the more difficult. But you know, Rome wanted to conquer the world. And they trained their soldiers to adapt and learn from battlefield situations. And so I have to believe at some point in Rome's history, as they were conquering the known world, they had taken dry wooden shields into battle and been shot with flaming darts. And if you've got a dry piece of wood and you get hit with fire, you don't win that battle. That does not go well for you. And so they'd learned and they'd adapted so you know what, if we soak these in water, and then if we cover them in leather, and then we cover them in metal, the enemy will be able to see us coming, and they will know your darts aren't going to work anymore. And as I was praying through that and reflecting on that, I was challenged about my faith, because Paul takes this imagery of a shield and says, this is your faith. Is my faith growing and maturing from battle to battle? Is it allowing me to, to maybe I stumble and fall, but I learned something. And now the next time I'm hip to the schemes of the enemy and I'm not going to fall into that again. The second thing that really jumped out at me as I was thinking about this imagery of a shield, when you imagine two, um, two armies marching towards each other and they're advancing to the battlefield, is the first thing you would see as you head towards your enemy, their breastplate or their belt or their sword, even their shield, if you're talking about this huge, massive thing, or their their, uh, helmet. No. The first thing you would see is a wall of shields coming at you. And what I feel like uh, God just kind of challenged me with that I'm going to submit to you guys this morning is that our shield, our faith is to go before us and be on display for all to see. And if I can just be transparent for a moment, I think I'm far too guilty of taking my shield, my faith and saying, you know, I don't want to be an inconvenience or a burden or have an awkward conversation with anybody. So I'm going to take this shield and I'm going to put it behind my back. So people don't have to see. It doesn't have to be an awkward conversation. I'm just going to keep that between me and Jesus. And yet the imagery here that Paul is painting that the the church in Ephesus would have seen was that your shield is way out in front for the enemy to see, for all to see. And you know what? As I was thinking about this four four foot by two foot thing that's massive, when you lift it up, you know what? It's awfully hard to see through that. You have to walk by faith. You have to operate by faith. If you're going to go into battle, you need to walk by faith. And God has had my family on a journey for about the last year and a half or so where he's teaching us how to walk by faith. And I'm just, I want to give grace here. It is super easy to stand up here and say, walk by faith. It is so difficult to do. It is so scary to not know what's on the other side. But the more you step out in faith and you put that shield saying, you know what? I know what is true. Jesus, you are righteous. You are, and I'm going to trust you. And I'm just going to take a step. 
And then you watch God show up and you feel protected and you feel ready for the battle. And then you take another step. God will grow and mature your faith as you put your faith out in front. Letting others and the enemy know, I don't come in my own authority. I fight for the king of kings. He goes on to say, take the helmet of salvation. If we go back to the Isaiah 59 passage in verse 17, we see that again, the Messiah was going to come wearing this helmet of salvation. That Jesus again, riding into Jerusalem as the crowds are worshiping him and proclaiming him to be king. He knew I've got to die in order for me to really deal with your problem. You have a sin problem. Me being king over Israel isn't enough. I want to be the king of your hearts. I want to solve your sin issue, not just your political one. And he came with that on the forefront of his mind. And I do think it's important here to acknowledge that Paul has switched language a little bit. Throughout this passage, we've seen him say, put on, put on, fasten. There's this personal responsibility. Now he's switched, and when it comes to the shield and it comes to the, the helmet, we're told to take. And again, there is this imagery, there is this language being used that when a soldier would get all ready for battle, the last thing he would do is be presented with his shield and his helmet. It was not his to go and find. Somebody would come and give it to him. Say, you're all ready, you've done all. Here, take this. And go fight. And so we see here again, Paul, while it's subtle, I think it's vital for us to understand that our salvation is presented to us as a gift from God. Our faith is a gift that we take. We don't earn. We don't pick it up. It's not ours to white knuckle and grip. It is a gift from God. And we are to receive it. And then we have a responsibility to steward that. But this salvation, we should think about it. We should dwell on it. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ should not be something that we started with in our faith. And now we're like, oh, we're on to deeper things like end times theology and Calvinism versus Arminianism and and the deeper, more important thing. The gospel is what it's all about. And we should constantly be reminding ourselves that we were enemies of God, but Jesus made us alive. We don't move on. We need to remember. And this helmet of salvation then protects our minds. The battlefield that is our thoughts. If we dwell on, we have been saved by grace. That equips us to take thoughts captives, to enter into temptation and struggles and trials and have victory. The last piece of the armor that we see here is the sword of the Spirit. He says, which is the Word of God. Last week we looked at Revelation 19 and we saw that our coming King, that Jesus is going to return This time he's not riding on a colt. He's coming on a white horse. And what was coming out of his mouth? A sword. And one of his many names in that verse 11 through 16 passage in Revelation 19 is that that he is called the word 
of God. And so we see when, when our king returns, he will wield the sword. But in this life of, of the already of our salvation, but the not yet of God's kingdom, it is our responsibility to go to battle and wield our swords, which is the word of God. But that only can happen if you know the word. And so hopefully an encouragement, maybe a conviction for you this morning, is if this is the only word that you get in your week, I would guess you're losing a lot of battles because you're not able to wield your sword. We need to be in the word. We need to know how to steward and use God's word so that when battles and struggles and trials come our way, we can fight. We need to know who we are. We need to know what God has laid out for us so we can follow him and use it. And this is what we see in the life of Jesus. When he's being commissioned into ministry, he spends 40 days in the wilderness. And then at the end of that time, it says Satan comes to attack him and get him off mission. Try to trip him up. Try to get him to not fulfill what he came to do. And at every attack, what does Jesus do? He comes back with the word. He fights off the enemy with the word of God. And so as a soldier of Christ, you need to know the word. You need to know what he says, what he wants of you, so that in those moments, you can use the word to fight off the enemy. Not only do we need to be equipped with the armor, but he says in verse 18, um, we really could put all of this armor in like a parenthesis because he starts out saying stand and then he explains what we're wearing when we stand. And then he says praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. We go into battle not just equipped with God's armor, but equipped with the power of prayer. If we want to have victory, if we want to see God's kingdom advance we have to be a people who pray. And I see six things kind of here in um, verses 18 through 20 that Paul is encouraging the Ephesian church to practice. First, he says, pray constantly. So pray at all times. If your identity is in Christ as a son and daughter of the king, you have his ear. He is listening to you. He is never far off. And so when you're in battle, you can cry out to him. He says, pray at all times. And then he says, pray in the spirit. Our prayer lives should not be uh, flesh driven, should not be just my thoughts, my ideas, my agendas. But he's saying, pray in the spirit. And if you're like me, you're like, well, what does that mean? How do I do that? I want to give you a tool to try out this week. I want to encourage you to take this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. 
And I want you, because here's what I believe. I believe this is the word of God inspired by the spirit of God. And so if we want to be a people who pray in the spirit, you know, a great way to do that, pray the spirit's words. And so you come to Ephesians 6 verse 10. And as you're just trying this, I want you to just, just give it a shot. See what happens. Test me in this. Finally, let's go to verse 10. I'm just going to, this is what it could look like. So you come to the word and you want to pray in the spirit. So you read the spirit's words. Verse 10, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Read that verse. And then you know what? What comes to your mind? Man, Lord, I'm supposed to be strong, but strong in you. And so show me what that means. Show me how I've been relying on my own strength. Show me how I've been depending on my own ability. And Lord, help me trust you. Help me be strong in you. And it says the strength of your might. Lord, today, I want you to show me how mighty you are and how weak and needy and dependent I am. And just pray that verse until you have no words left. And then go to verse 11. And then go to verse 12. And when you're praying the Spirit's words, you're going to pray in the Spirit. It doesn't have to be this complicated, unattainable thing. Just allow the Spirit's words to direct your prayer life, and you will pray in the Spirit. Not only that, but he says uh, that we're to pray diligently. He says, with all prayer and supplication, we should be a people who are faithful in prayer. And alert in prayer. We should pray alertly. He says um, that we are to that end keep alert. That after we've been praying and asking things of God and coming before the throne, we should then look for things to be different. We should have an expectancy to our prayer life if we are going to be equipped in battle. And then he says with all perseverance. That we shouldn't just pray once and be done, but we should press in and be willing to pray about things for a long time, if that's what the Lord would have. We live in a very instant gratification, fast food culture, where, man, I I prayed for this today, and it didn't happen, so clearly it's not going to work. Man, we need to press in, persevere. And then lastly, our prayer shouldn't just be us-focused, but rather we should pray for one another. He says, pray for all the saints. Who are you praying for? Who's on your list that you pray for that's not you? Are there neighbors, coworkers, friends, family that you are regularly persevering in prayer? Asking the God of the heavens to intervene. We need to be a people of prayer. And Paul's not ashamed to ask for prayer. That would be the other thing I would say is, it's okay to say, hey, will you pray for me? Because that's what Paul does here at the end. He says, also pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I want you to think about this for a second. Let's imagine you're in prison. Your future is unsure. What would your prayer request be? And if it was me, I'd be like, I'd like you to pray for a not guilty verdict or a sleepy guard and loose chains so I can escape. But that's not what Paul prays for. That's not what Paul asks for prayer for. He says, will you pray that I would be more bold to proclaim this gospel that landed me here? I'm in jail because of professing Jesus. Make me all the more bold to profess Jesus. That was convicting for me. 
That was very, like, man, is my faith and my passion for the gospel so deep that in the midst of a prison sentence, I would say, give me all the more strength to press on. That's what Paul is asking for here because he wants to be equipped in the midst of the battle with prayer. And then finally, he recognizes that we are not in this alone. We need to go into battle equipped with help. That there's no such thing as a lone soldier, lone ranger Christian. We need to fight for one another. That's how Paul kind of ends and wraps up this letter, saying that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing. I'm sending Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. He will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with him, with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be all, with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul kind of wraps up this letter encouraging the believers in Ephesus to know you're not alone. I'm pressing in in prayer and I'm sending you Tychicus, who's not an intern. This isn't sending some JV pastor. This is sending a beloved brother and faithful minister, a heavy hitter, a heavy hitter, not JV like Jason, not that, that's not what I meant. Um, He's sending, a, he's sending a rock star to the church in Ephesus that would be like sending JV. He's sending a, a faithful minister and a beloved brother to equip and encourage these guys to let them know you're not in this alone. And also, you know what? Here's what's going on in my life. We need to be in this together. And I was so encouraged this week to just see this, this idea that, man, we are the bride of Christ and we should bear one another's burdens and fight for one another and battle alongside each other. That's why it's so important that we have regroups, our small groups that you get involved and plug in so that as your week goes on, when you start hitting trials and struggles and, and different things, you can come to a group of believers and say, I need help. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, we got to be in this together. And not only that, I was just struck as he's, he's, again, wanting them to know that they're not in this alone at Paul's ability, regardless of the battle that he finds himself in. He's an ambassador in chains. He's in prison. He's able to pray and praise the name of Jesus Christ. He ends the letter saying, peace, love, faith, grace to all who love Jesus with an uncorruptible love. There are battles and struggles in this room that feel like the weight of the world. And life is hard. That's why Paul is closing the letter this way, so that our eyes would be fixed forward. Say, I know Jesus is coming back, and this is hard. But in, in the midst of every situation, there is an opportunity to pray and praise our King of Kings. It doesn't make it hurt less, but it will give purpose to the pain. It doesn't make it less of a struggle, but it will reorient your heart and your mind and give you small victories as you endure. And so whatever your struggles, whatever your trials, don't go through them alone. Don't go into them with your own power and your own authority when we have the armor of God available. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to transition into a time of communion. And I'm going to have the band come back up. And as we ready our hearts for communion, my hope this morning. Last week, we kind of ended with this plea and this battle cry as we stood and professed and declared that we have victory in Jesus. This morning, I want us to commune with him as soldiers in his army. Saying, Jesus, we are dependent on you. We desperately need you. And then I want us to stand as a team, declaring that every chain is broken, that we have been set free, and we now get to serve our King of Kings. And so what I want you to do in this time, in the next few moments as you prepare your hearts, is just whatever you feel like you need to do to get ready for battle. If that's pressing into one of these pieces of armor and praying through one of those verses, I would encourage you to do that. If there's confession that needs to take place, if there's repentance, I want you to do that. And then when you feel ready, I would encourage you to make your way to one of the stations uh, on the sides. Take the cracker representing his, blo- uh, his body. Dip it in the juice representing his blood. And then we can come and as a team, cry out in battle that Jesus has won, that he's our righteousness, and our victory is in him. Will you pray with me?